This evening, we're concluding our overview of the Old Testament book titled Nehemiah. With this as the focus, let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. And as you're making your way to the 13th chapter of Nehemiah, well, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Nehemiah was the man that the Lord raised up to go to Jerusalem and help build those walls around the city. And in this way, Nehemiah was providing the people of God with an added measure of protection so that they could safely serve the Lord there at the temple. Well, then came the day when Nehemiah returned to Babylon. I'll remind you, he was the cupbearer of the king. And so he had to return to Babylon in order to take care of official business. And while commentators have different ideas about how long he was gone, some scholars suggest that Nehemiah may have been gone for at least a year. Others speculate that he could have been gone upwards of 11 years. But regardless of the precise frame of time, what we do know for sure is that the Israelites, well, they had already begun to return to their rebellious ways, and by the time he got back, uh, things had kind of gone south. And as we make our way through the final chapter of this book, we'll see how their return to rebellion resulted in the defilement of the temple. From this, well, we can see that it doesn't take long for the people of faith to return to their rebellious ways. Doesn't take long at all. And listen, this was not only true of the Israelites during the days of Nehemiah, Uh, But this is also also true of Christians here in the 21st century church. That's right. The born-again believer who is super excited about Christ Jesus at the time of their conversion, well, they can quickly become the backslidden believer who's defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit. And with that being the case, I want to spend our time tonight considering the best way for Christians to stay on course with Christ Jesus. Well, with this as the focus, if you would, let's turn our attention now to the final chapter of Nehemiah's account here. And if you would look with me there, Nehemiah chapter 13, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Here Nehemiah writes, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now, here in the beginning of this chapter, we learn about the way that, uh, uh, that Nehemiah you know, returns here to Israel. It was on this day when they read from the book of Moses, and it's my guess that they were just putting on a show of it, you know, they're just like, okay, Nehemiah's back, let's pretend like we're studying the Bible here. And and, and it was on this day when the leaders of Israel, they read from the book of Moses, or in other words, they were teaching the doctrines uh, that are found in the uh, five books, the first five books of the Old Testament. Well, as they spent this time studying the scriptures, they came across a stipulation regarding the people of Ammon and Moab. And uh, the specific passage, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 23, it actually recounts the days when the children of Israel, they were camping in the plains of Moab. And this was just on the other side of the Jordan River, which was across from Jericho. And it was at that point in time when the king of Moab, he was disturbed uh, by the presence of the Israelites and he first refused to provide them with aid. Uh, he, he refused to provide them with food and, and, and any necessities. But, but then not only that, he also hired a Mesopotamian prophet named Balaam. And he hired Balaam to go and curse the children of Israel. And yet when all was said and done, um, well, he looked like a real donkey, if you will. 
uh, as he uh, attempted to curse the people of God. And, and the Lord actually turned the curse into a blessing. I like the way that Moses puts it in Deuteronomy chapter 23. It's verse 5 where he declares, The Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. I love that. The Lord turned Balaam's curse into a blessing for his chosen people. Why? Because he loved his people. He loved his people, faults and all. He, he loved them and wanted to bless them. And in this way, we can see how the Lord is able to turn every curse into a blessing, you know, for those who trust in him. Another example of this can be seen in the story of Joseph. I'll remind you, it was Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery because they were jealous of him. And yet the Lord used this horrific situation to place Joseph in the land of Egypt. And it was there where he became the second most powerful person in, in, in all of the land. Now, who can do that? Who can take a, a kid sold into slavery and, and raise this person up to become the second most powerful person in the land? And yet that's the story of Joseph. And then came the day after a time of famine when his brothers were forced to come to Egypt and they bowed down before Joseph in order to secure the supplies that they needed. And that's when they realized that they were bowing down before their brother, you know, the one that they sold into slavery. And then they knew that they were in trouble. And yet Joseph turned to them and declared, do not be afraid for I am I in the place of God. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. The, the brothers of Joseph had an evil plan and God allowed it. And, and no doubt it was a, a tough time for him as he was sold into slavery and, and had some rough days. And yet God's hand was on the whole thing. And God was able to turn the, the cursing into blessing. He was able to turn this evil act into something that was beneficial, not only for Joseph, but for all the Israelites. God is able to turn every curse into a blessing as he blesses those who will simply trust in him. I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 8. It's there where he declares, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. God is able to work all things together for the good of those who love him as we walk by faith according to his purpose. So rather than worrying about all those who are trying to curse us, I encourage you, let's instead just walk by faith according to the calling of Christ Jesus. And as we do this, as we walk by faith with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord then will just simply turn every cursing into a blessing. Does this mean every day is going to be easy? No. But yet the Lord is able to take every difficulty, every trial, every tribulation, he's able to turn it into something that is a blessing. With that being the case, I want to consider what, what it looks like to live according to the perfect purpose of God then. And, and with that, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, if you would look with me there at verse 3. Here Nehemiah then declares, so it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. In other words, after reading the law of the Lord, the Israelites decided that, well, they needed to obey the instructions of God's word. 
And as a result, they started separating themselves from the uncircumcised Gentiles who hadn't yet embraced the true and living God. Now, we'll, we'll get into why there were all these uncircumcised Gentiles living amongst them later on in our study. But here at least we see that they heard the word of God. They, they heard what it said about the Moabites and the Ammonites. And they decided to obey. They separated themselves from the mixed multitude. And with this in mind, I want to point out here that we find similar instructions in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. There Paul declares, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, those who want to live their life according to the purpose of the Lord if you've truly been called according to his purpose, well, we need to realize that there must be some level of separation from those who refuse to repent. Now, listen, I'm not suggesting that we have to leave this wicked world, though I can't wait. But we've been called to live here in this wicked world, but we haven't been called to live like this wicked world. And yeah, we have to live amongst unbelievers. But much like the Israelites who were called to separate themselves from the unrepentant Gentiles, listen, the born-again believer has also been called to come out from among the unrepentant unbelievers of this world. And what I believe this means is that our closest connections should be found within our Christian community. That when we seek Counsel when we look for accountability, when we're looking for, you know, some uh, some encouragement, that we ought to be looking to other believers for that advice, for that accountability, for that admonition. And the reason I say this is because this is in line with the instructions that we find in the New Testament epistles. If you're still looking to unbelievers for your counsel, if you're still looking to unbelievers you know, for your encouragement, if your closest connections are still unbelievers, uh, there's something wrong with that, Christian. Because we've been called to come out from among them and be separate. To further make my case, I want to continue to consider how the Israelites separated themselves from the unrepentant Gentiles. So let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 13. If you would look with me here, beginning at verse 4, here Nehemiah declares, Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah, and he had prepared for him a large room where Previously, they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered that e that, uh, the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God, and it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room." Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Now here in these verses, we're reintroduced to this Ammonite man named Tobiah. 
And it'll help us to remember that Tobiah was actually a leader of the Ammonites who also held an official position within the Persian kingdom. And not only that, but there also seems to be some evidence that Tobiah sought to influence the people of God by marrying the daughter of Shechaniah, who was a leader there amongst the people of Judah. At the same time, Tobiah the Ammonite was working together with the Moabites as well as with the Horonites, and together they were trying to stop the Israelites from reestablishing their presence there in the land of promise. Well, now here in our text tonight, we learn about the way that Eliashib, the high priest, had actually prepared a room for Tobiah uh, there in the courts of the house of God. The room that was set up to uh, secure the offerings that were set aside for the Levites and, 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 uh, and, and the singers. They cleared out that room and, and they made room for Tobiah. Now, my guess is that Elisha probably had all sorts of reasons for making this arrangement. He probably, in his mind, had worked out all of these, you know, well-thought-out, reasonable things for, for why this was okay. And yet, Nehemiah insists that this was nothing less than an evil deed. That's right, he says that the, the high priest of Israel was engaged in an evil deed in doing this. I'll remind you, you know, according to the word of God, no unrepentant Ammonite should ever enter into the assembly of God. But there's Tob- Tobiah the Ammonite living in a room there on the temple grounds. And with that being the case, Nehemiah decided to throw all of Tobiah's household goods out of that room. Amazing. He threw out his couches and his entertainment center, you know, threw out his, I don't know, black light paintings of Elvis. I don't know. I don't know what the guy had. Threw out his squatty potty. I, I don't know what the guy had, but, but he threw it all out. Got rid of all of it. That's pretty drastic. It's pretty extreme. And yet Nehemiah was correct because what the high priest had done was evil. He also ordered the priests and the Levites to cleanse the room according to the instructions that the Lord had revealed in the, book of Mo- in the books of Moses. And the reason why is because Tobiah's presence had defiled the temple grounds where he was living. Tobiah's presence had defiled the temple grounds because he was an uncircumcised Gentile who had not converted to Judaism. And yet there he was, on Temple Mount. And much like Tobiah who defiled the temple, listen, the born-again believer can also defile the temple of God as, as we spend time you know, uh, around those who are still living for the lusts of the flesh. And, 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 and if you think I'm making this up, I encourage you to consider what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he declares, do not be deceived. Meaning, this is something that you might be deceived about. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Simple as that. Evil company corrupts good habits. The Christian who is making room for the Tobias of this world are simultaneously allowing evil company to corrupt their good habits. And with that being the case, we would all do well to remember that the influences that we allow into our lives will end up affecting our walk with the Lord for better or for worse. If you spend time with with godly people who are walking with the Lord by faith, 
they're, they're going to encourage our faith. They're, they're going to help us to walk in the way that we should. And if we're spending time with unbelievers who are encouraging us to, to walk in sin, well, evil company corrupts good habits. Don't be deceived. Don't think for one second that you can maintain that close connection and it won't affect your walk with the Lord. That's self-deception. Further proof of my point can be found here in Nehemiah chapter 13. If you would look with me here, beginning at verse 10. Here, Nehemiah goes on to write this. He says, I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them, for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shelemiah the priest, and Zadok, the scribe, and of the Levites, Pedaiah, and next to them was Hanan, the son of Zachur, uh, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Now I want to stop here. I want to, I want to take some time to consider the, the domino effect or the ripple effect that occurred after the high priest Eliashib allowed Tobiah the Ammonite to move into the storehouse there in the temple courts. You see, after Eliashib embraced Tobiah by allowing him to treat the temple like his own personal hotel, well, that's when the people stopped showing up for daily sacrifices. That's when people stopped showing up to give their tithes. That's, that's when people stopped showing up, you know, to bring their offerings. And as a result, you know, as the storehouse is being used to house Tobiah, there's no place to store any of these things. And so there was no support for the Levites and the singers. They, they didn't receive their daily provisions. And as a result, they had to go back to their own fields to earn a living. And as they worked in their own fields to earn a living, well, they were no longer serving the Lord there at the temple. Now think about that for a second. As we consider this domino effect, we can see how one bad decision created this ripple effect that, that resulted in widespread rebellion. Eliashib provided space for Tobiah to live there on Temple Mount. And after that decision was made, it was only a matter of time until the praises of the Lord were no longer being heard there at the house of the Lord. Why? Because the Levites and the singers were back in their fields. One bad decision to, to allow Tobiah into the temple resulted in this ripple effect. With all this in mind, it's important for us to remember that the born-again believer, we are now the temple of God. As, as we consider the way that the temple was affected by the presence of Tobiah, we're the temple now, Christian. And with that being the case, you know, Paul was quick to warn us about the decisions which might defile our temple. It's actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul posed this poignant question by asking this. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And then he says this, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You might be thinking, Bungie, that's too harsh. I didn't write it. I just read it. 
This is what Paul is warning us about. Christian, you are the temple, and if you defile the temple, God's going to destroy you. This is a warning that every Christian ought to take seriously. And just to be clear, you know, this word defile in, in these verses, it speaks of that which has been spoiled by sin. It's also a, world, a word to hear that refers to the corruption caused by the decay of depravity. And what this means then is that the Christian who continues to defile their lives with sinful depravity, well, they're going to soon discover that the Lord will allow us to destroy our own lives. For example, I'll just uh, remind you, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul declares, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? In other words, the Christian who is committing sexual immorality they're simultaneously defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, uh, the Lord might allow a, a sinning Christian, a Christian who is sinning in this sort of way, uh, he might allow their body to be destroyed by a sexually transmitted disease. That's not uncommon. It's also in 1 Timothy 6 where we learn that those who continue to pursue their covetous desire for worldly wealth, they're going to be trapped in temptation as they fall into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Think about that for a moment. He's talking about believers who you know, make worldly wealth their number one goal and these are people who fall into foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction? Yeah. The Lord will allow the backslidden believer to, to destroy their lives as they chase after the wealth of this world. And, and if you want to make your goal the, the defilement of the temple, the Lord will allow that. The Lord will allow you to go down that path of self-destruction. Knowing that there are many, many ways that we can defile the temple of the Holy Spirit, you know, I encourage every Christian to realize that the path of personal destruction begins when we allow Tobiah the Ammonite to occupy even a small room within our hearts. When we invite Tobiah in, just even into a small space of our heart, that's the first bad decision that results in defilement that then concludes with destruction. To further make my case, let's continue to consider how the Israelites returned to their rebellious ways here in our text tonight. If you would look with me here at Nehemiah chapter 13, we'll pick up our study beginning at verse 15. Here Nehemiah writes, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut 
and charged that they must not be open till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Now here in these verses, we find Nehemiah, he's contending with the leaders there in Jerusalem regarding the rebellious people who were breaking the Mosaic law by working on the Sabbath. And I want to remind you, it's actually back in Exodus chapter 20, where the God of Israel actually commanded the Israelites to keep the Sabbath day holy and to do this by resting on the seventh day. Here's how Moses put it in Exodus chapter 20. It's beginning at verse 8 where he declares, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And here in these verses, we find, uh, we find Moses here. He's helping the Israelites to realize that the Sabbath law, well, the Sabbath law was actually based on the time frame that the Lord set up during the days of creation. We find that account back in Genesis chapter 1 where God creates you know, the, uh, the earth and, and, and the universe in, in six days and then rests on the seventh. And just like the Lord who worked six days and then rested on the seventh, so too the Israelites were being directed to work six days and then rest on the seventh. The model of creation was designed to, you know, present us with a proper uh, work week. As we consider the way that the Lord used the days of creation as this model for Moses, well, it seems to me that this rules out then the speculations of those who try to shoehorn the theory of evolution into the creation account that's found in the book of Genesis. And, you know, they do this by saying, well, you know, one day could be like a billion years, right? And, well, if that's the case, then I guess we have to work six billion years and then rest on the seventh billionth year. Is that, is that the way we're supposed to understand it? Those who try to shoehorn the theory of evolution into the creation account are, are monkeying, you know, with what it means to, to have a day. The Lord told Moses, hey, just like I did it, so should you. How did he do it? Six days, rested on the seventh. How should we do it? Work six days, rest on the seventh. And listen, this not only rules out the speculations of those who try to, you know, shoehorn in theistic evolution, uh, but this also rules out the speculations of those who attempt to squeeze the gap theory uh, in Genesis chapter 1 between verses 1 and 2. You know, they want to try to make, you know, some undefined period of time, this long age of maybe billions of years where, you know, everything that happened in the, in the geologic column occurred between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. And they just kind of, you know, squeeze that whole time period into there. So day one wasn't 24 hours. 
day one was a billion years and then day two was 24 hours? Is that, is that what we're supposed to assume here? Listen, there's no biblical, nor is there scientific reason to believe that God interrupted the first day of creation with some undefined gap of time during which then the, all the geological events that we find in the earth occurred. Plus, this would disrupt the model of the six-day work you know, week and the seventh day of rest. You would have to have a, the first day of the six days be you know, an undetermined period of time that could be a billion years, and then we'll continue on with the next you know, five days followed by the day of rest. None of this makes sense. It's very, very simple. God worked six days. He rested on the seventh. Turned around and said to Moses, just like I did it, so should you. Work six days and rest on the seventh. God didn't create the, the world on, on, on one day and then recreate the world after that gap of time. This is all just silliness that people use to speculate about. They're, they're, they're trying to make sense of, you know, the geologic column which if you want to make sense of the geologic column and all the dead critters that we see underground, I just go read Noah's account. That's where you find that. If you want to know why we find fossils buried, you know, in rock, it's Noah's flood. There's your answer. If you try to squeeze a period of time into the creation account where critters died before you know, everything was, was finished there with creation. You try to have this gap of time where critters are dying and being buried underground. Now you have death before Adam. And if you have death happening before Adam, then the curse wasn't caused by Adam. And if the curse isn't caused by Adam, then Jesus can't be the second Adam to reverse the curse. And now you've done real damage to the salvific account of Jesus and what he accomplished there on the cross. So let's be careful with all this theistic evolution and, and these gap theories because it really does do damage to the, the, the story of salvation in Jesus being the second Adam and coming to reverse the curse. Well, with all, having said all of that, I know I've... Uh, run on with a little tangent here, but uh, listen, the, the Lord created the, 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 the universe in six literal days, rested on the seventh, and he used this as the example for the seven-day work week, uh, which culminates in the Sabbath day of rest. And, and not only that, but listen, when it comes to the old covenant, it's in Exodus 31 where the Lord also declares this. He says, work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wow. This is serious business for those under the old covenant. In verse 16, he says, therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and who? The children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Now from this, we can see that the Sabbath law was a requirement under the old covenant for the children of Israel. And with that being the case, Nehemiah reminded the leaders there in Judah that this was one of the main reasons for why their fathers were carried away as captives you know, into Babylon. They failed to observe the Sabbath days. They failed, they failed to observe the Sabbath years. And, and so the Lord carried them away into captivity. 
And seeing how they were already slipping back into this sin, you know, Nehemiah orders them to repent of this rebellion. Now, with all this in mind, it's important for us to understand that the Sabbath day of rest was actually a shadow and a symbol of the rest that we receive in Jesus Christ. So the Sabbath law still stands, but it's just important to realize that the fulfillment of the Sabbath law is found in Jesus Christ. When we enter into Jesus Christ, we enter into our Sabbath rest. I've been in my Sabbath rest since uh, the summer of 1995 when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, every day is a day of rest you know, for me, which is why I sleep in late. But, uh, no, but seriously, you know, the, the Christian is at rest. We're no longer working our way to heaven. We are resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our rest. Therefore, this is the one law from the Mosaic law. This is the one law from the Decalogue, which is not repeated as a command in the New Testament. All of the other nine are repeated as, as orders for the church. This is the one that's not specifically mentioned and, and, and directed, and the reason why is because the Christian cannot break the Sabbath law. We are at rest every day in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. The Sabbath was a, a shadow and a symbol of the rest that we have in Jesus Christ, and those who have placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we've entered into our Sabbath rest. And at the same time, though, listen, we've also been called to become Christians who are committed to the assembly of our Christian congregation. And so, uh, listen, uh, the, the, uh, I, I encourage every believer to, to realize that the Christian who begins to forsake their fellowship of faith, they're on a path which will result in rebellion. Now, don't get me wrong, because I'm not suggesting that you have to go to church to be a Christian. At the same time, you, you, you don't have to eat food to be a human. You can be a human and not eat food. You're just not going to be a very good human for very long. And in similar fashion, the Christian who doesn't seek spiritual nourishment you know, through the the, the assembly of believers where a, a pastor is raised up to uh, present the word of God and provide that spiritual nourishment, you know, the Christian who doesn't take part in that, uh, you know, trust me when I tell you that the Christian who forsakes the fellowship of faith is headed down a path which will result in spiritual starvation. Might not happen overnight, but it's only a matter of time. In order to further make my case, let's consider uh, how the Israelites returned to their rebellious ways. And with that, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah 13. We'll begin reading at verse 23. Here Nehemiah writes, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Now, listen, I don't ever want to hear ever, anyone ever again telling me how, how harsh I was. I've never actually cursed at anybody uh, or struck them or, or pulled out their hair. You know, so, so, so this gives me new boundaries here for counsel and, uh, 
And I might act on that at some point, but uh, <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, th- this guy's angry. He's mad about this. And as he contends with the leaders of Judah, you know, he's, he's filled with what I believe to be righteous indignation. And the reason why is because the leaders were allowing the people of God to, to marry the unrepentant unbelievers from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And, and as a result, you know, the, the righteous indignation of Nehemiah was brought to a boil as he curses them and strikes them and, and probably begins to pull, you know, uh, the beard hair out as, as, a, as a sign of, uh, of, of uh, well, it, you know, I had a guy touch my beard one time. Just realize you don't touch another man's beard. I kid you not, he came up to me at a pastor's conference and he, and he kind of just kind of grabbed a hold of my beard. And, and I just kind of backed away and said, look, buddy, men shouldn't touch other men's beards. And I just left it at that. To pluck out another man's beard, man, that is, that is aggressive. And that's what happened here. In order to understand his anger, I should take a moment to remind you that it was back in Nehemiah chapter 10. That's when Nehemiah encouraged the people to make a covenant with the Lord as they promised to avoid these interfaith marriages. And the reason why is because interfaith, we're not talking about interracial marriages, we're talking about interfaith marriages. Interfaith marriages have a way of leading people astray. And with with this in mind, I want to consider the argument that Nehemiah presented here in our text tonight. So look with me again at Nehemiah chapter 13. We'll pick up at verse 26. Here Nehemiah asks, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations, there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him a king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? In other words, King Solomon, who was the wisest ruler in the history of Israel, some might even argue that he was given a special measure of wisdom that's been beyond any ruler since then. And yet, in all of the wisdom that he received from the Lord, he was blinded by his sexual desires. Please hear me when I tell you that as smart as you think you are, we all still have blind spots. And King Solomon, as wise as he was, still allowed his desire for pagan women to lead him astray. And it's sad to say that his sins, his, sins, uh, his sexual immoralities ended up causing the, the complete division of the kingdom. The kingdom of Israel was split in half because of his sins, because he allowed pagan wives to bring idols uh, into the land of Israel. Now, in light of this lesson, Nehemiah, you know, thinking back to how Solomon you know, actually caused all of Israel to be split in half, which then resulted in the Babylonian captivity. You know, Nehemiah is filled with indignation. And, and, and like I can just only imagine in his mind him thinking, have you, have you guys not learned? How, how is it that you haven't learned? How is it that you're the dog returning to its vomit? You ever seen a dog return to its vomit? It goes and eats something and then it gets a little sick in the stomach, throws it up and walks away and then stumbles back upon it. What's this, huh? Mm. someone left me a little treat 
And, and that's, that's the way it is with sin. Nehemiah is angered by this as, as the leaders there in Judah are allowing the people to go back down this same road by, by engaging in these interfaith marriages that had already hurt Israel. And it's for this reason that he makes them swear by God in verse 25 by saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Now with that, I just want to address singles here. Please trust me when I tell you that the believer who marries an unbeliever is going to end up being pulled in two different directions. The believer who marries an unbeliever will be pulled in two different directions. And it's for this reason that Paul encouraged us to make sure that we are equally yoked together with believers. In my premarital time, one of the things that I'm looking for is to find out if there's a believer with an unbeliever because I won't officiate a wedding between a believer and an unbeliever. Listen, singles, if you're growing impatient as you look for your future spouse, and if you're struggling with your singleness because it's so hard, let me tell you, your struggle today is nothing in comparison to the issues that you're going to have if you marry an unbeliever. You think it's hard now, it will only get more difficult. It's always easier to remain a single believer than it is to be a believer who's married to an unbeliever. So I would spare you from the pain of that. I like the way that the Lord explained it in Deuteronomy chapter 7. There he declares, you shall not make marriages with them, speaking of the Gentiles. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Christian, listen, the believer who marries an unbeliever is multiplying the difficulty of the marital relationship. And the reason why is because the believer will constantly be tempted to please the unbelieving spouse, and the unbelieving spouse wants to go in a direction that's different from God's plan. And as, as a result, you know, the, the believer oftentimes ends up living in sin in order to please the unbelieving spouse. Parents, before you let your kids start dating, you might want to look into the, uh, you know, the relationship that uh, that other individual has with the Lord and I'm here to tell you, everyone claims to be a Christian when it comes down to dating. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, they said they're a Christian. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, don't be blind. I encourage every single believer to wait for the Lord because the waiting is easier than the struggles that occur within an interfaith marriage. Finally, it's important for us to realize that Listen, the enemy is attempting to defile the temple with pagan practices. And with this as the focus, let's consider the final verses of this book. If you would look with me here, beginning at verse 28. Here, Nehemiah tells us that one of the sons of Joyada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything pagan. I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O oh my God, 
for good. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Nehemiah driving out this priest who ended up marrying the daughter of Sanballat the Horonite. And we learn here that, that Nehemiah drove him out. I, I just can't help but to wonder, did he grab him by the beard and just kind of pull him out of town? I don't know. I sure would like to think so. But Nehemiah here asks the Lord then to remember the sins of those who had not only defiled the priesthood, but who had also defiled the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And that's, that's a pretty stern prayer there. Lord, remember their sins, don't forgive them. That's what he's praying. Not only that, but Nehemiah also calls them to cleanse the temple in order to purge everything that was pagan. Uh, apparently, you know, this, this uh, individual, the grandson of Eliashib the high priest, had brought pagan things into the temple, and Eliashib the high priest had allowed it. And Nehemiah is saying, hey, cleanse it. He called the priests and the Levites to go in, cleanse the temple. And as we consider the way that Nehemiah here assigns priests uh, to, perform, to perform this cleansing, you know, it's, it's important for us to remember that here in this day and age, here in the church age, we no longer have a temple there in Israel. No, we are the temple. The body of every born-again believer is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I, and I, I like the way that the Apostle Peter put it. Uh, in First Peter chapter 2, it's verse 5, where he refers to Christians as living stones who are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christian, listen, we are the living stones of, these, of the church age temple. And so while we individually are temples of the Holy Spirit, we too are together a, a spiritual house, if you will. And with that being the case, listen, we must be careful to avoid defiling the temple with pagan practices. Because if you're a stone in the church age temple and, and I'm a stone in the church age temple and, and together we're being built into this house of the Lord, well, if you're defiled with pagan practices, then doesn't it defile the entire temple? Doesn't a little leaven leaven the entire lump? Knowing that this is the case, Peter goes on to pre present you know, some very specific instructions here in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's verse 9 where he picks up and declares this, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Christian, listen, the Lord has called us to become his royal priesthood here on the earth. We're not only the living stones of the house of God, but we are a royal priesthood. And as his own special people, he wants us to proclaim the praises of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, this is the calling according to his purpose. That we would proclaim the praises 
of our Savior Jesus. At the same time, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that the Lord is calling us to abstain from every pagan practice. We should abstain from every pagan practice which could keep us from our heavenly purpose. And we all have this responsibility individually realizing that, you know, if, if we start taking part in pagan practices, our participation in preg, uh, you know, pagan practices end up affecting everyone else here within the house of the Lord. That being the case, Peter encouraged us to abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And instead, we've been called to conduct ourselves like Christians who are following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And as we walk by faith with Jesus, he will empower us with the power of the Holy Spirit to avoid those little decisions which could end up defiling the temple of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank